Two Guys Talking Nostalgia Engine is here. And we need your help. Two Guys Talking has begun stockpiling reviews of great, classic movies, and we want to know what you want us to review. Access twoguystalking.com now and tell us which classic movies on DVD and Blu-ray we should put into the Two Guys Talking Perspective Review crosshairs and help us fuel the internet's best repository for engaging, nostalgic feature film reviews. Access twoguystalking.com and click any one of the Nostalgia Engine pictures. Tell us which movies you want right now. Action, horror, comedies, even the occasional rom-com. Access to guystalking.com. That's the number two, guystalking.com. The Nostalgia Engine. Ride in nostalgic style while you listen. Twoguystalking.com. Have you ever had the feeling of being watched? Hidden eyes following you, a cold chill crawling up your spine, the hairs on the back of your neck standing straight up. Do you know what that is? It's fear. It's fear. Fear is the most basic human emotion tied into our instinct to survive. Fear gives us the means to overcome great odds or cripple us with paralyzing dread. Dread. But fear can also entertain. (laughs) Turn off all the lights, lock your closet door, and ignore the sounds from beneath your bed. It's time for Two Guys Talking Horror. Throughout the history of film, There have been hundreds of horror movies, but only a few rise to the top. Everything is subjective. Your taste in movies is definitely one of them. They may not be the scariest, they may not be the bloodiest, but everybody has a list of those films you just have to watch year after year. We've compiled the 13 must-watch horror films for any horror fan. Here for you on Two Guys Talking Horror. Salutations, everyone. I'm Nicholas J. Hearn, your host. And I'm Jason Contini, your co-host. And welcome to another edition of Lethal Listings. These are fun. Horror movies, baby. Horror movies. A list of horror movies that you have to, must, absolutely have to watch. Of course. You're going to have to listen to this. But first, before we get to the lists, a little bit of housekeeping. The Ghostbusters 1984 Perspective Review. Now, some of you may or may not know that uh, there was this film. It was a, a remake. It was a reboot of Ghostbusters that came out in the summer of 2016 and uh didn't do so well didn't do so well because well you took a name that everybody loved and you took that concept that the name is attached to and you pretty much just pooped all over it and that's what the ghostbusters remake was 
Unfortunately, Jason, you weren't there to be a part of it, but Mike Wilkerson, the CEO and and podmeister of the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network, he and I sat down, we watched Ghostbusters, we watched the special features, and then we sat down and we recorded an epic perspective review where, well, let's just say there may or may not be a, a five-minute rant <laughs> from me about a certain topic. I mean, it, it, it might be there. It might not be there. Hey, the only way that you're going to find out it's there is if you go over to twoguystalking.com forward slash Ghostbusters. There you'll be able to listen to the review in its entirety. You'll be able to listen to me and Mike just talk about some some great things that even diehard fans probably didn't even know. For anybody out there right now that is wondering, I have heard the whole thing, and yes, you're definitely going to want to check this out. It is a lot of fun, especially the rant. <laughs> oh, see, now you just told them that the rant definitely is oh, there. The rant that may or may not be there. Yeah, I mean, man, especially. come on, settle. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta bring them in. The two guys talking cars. Christine perspective review. That's right. It's a double dose of horror film perspective reviews. And again, Mike Wilkerson, the main man here at Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Him and his co-host Ron Riling of Two Guys Talking Cars. Dissect this this great film. When's the last time you saw Christine, Jason? Oh, it's been... It's been a while, right? Yeah, at least 15 years. At least 15 years? If I, not more. I, I would say it's probably about eight or nine for me. I have not been able to watch it on the, the new Blu-ray that was released not too long ago. So anybody that is a fan of either Stephen King, John Carpenter, or cars in general... Head on over to twoguystalking.com forward slash Christine, and you'll be able to listen to the episode in its entirety. <laughs> then let's dig right in. Before we fully dig into it, I think we should share how we arrived at this list of 13. Well, if you want to be that giving, sure. <laughs> Go ahead and reveal the trade secrets, Jason. Go ahead. <laughs> well, when we sat down, when Nick and I sat down to uh, discuss this episode of Lethal Listings, we uh, we started talking about the ultimate horror movies and the movies that he and I both gravitate to at least once, if not more likely multiple times throughout the year. Right. This, for us, is our personal choices for our favorite 13 horror films of all time. Now, again, our personal choices. We're not saying that these are the 13 greatest horror films ever no, made. We're no. not saying that these are great movies necessarily. We are saying that these are the ones that we enjoy watching the most and uh, based on our, it's this our tastes. Our taste and our the nostalgia factor for us. Yes, and, and based on all that, we would like to share that with all of you and... and See how much of it you agree with. Yeah, the uh, it's also it's definitely not the thirteen scariest horror movies. I mean, that's a total that's a completely different list. Some of these films are not scary at all. Some of them were scary when they came out, but aren't all that scary now compared to today's standards. Really, what Jason and I did, we wrote down thirteen horror movies that we love to watch. Each, each, each of us wrote our own separate 13. our own separate list. Then we looked at the list. Kind of, uh, it was actually a little funny. About half of our lists were identical, so we knew, okay, well, these definitely have to go Those there. Those six stayed. For Those sure. six stayed, and then we kind of we debated and we whittled 
and boom, we created this this epic list of the 13 must-watch horror films. Essentially pulled from the, the 26 movies that, between the two of us, we had compiled. Yeah. So it was very fair, even, very democratic. But filled with horror. <laughs> Lethal listings. All right. Let's do a countdown method here. We'll start at the bottom and we'll count down to what uh, Nick and I choose as the top. So we'll the start. Final countdown. <laughs> nice. Nice. Thank you. I've been practicing. Number 13. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, 1948. Mm. You know, this is a movie that I watch at least two or three times a year. I, I love... Oh, chick. Oh, chick. <laughs> I love Bud Abbott and Lou Costello in, in anything. Even, I mean, every movie that they make, they pretty much just rehash the same routines and jokes every single time. So you're basically just watching the same movie over and over again. Funny. But it's still funny. But it's funny no matter how they do it. Well, with this one, this is one where it is not necessarily the same jokes rehashed. These are kind of new and fresh jokes for them, at <laughs> least, and for 1948. But also, it was the culmination of cinema's first shared universe, if you will. I know a lot of people think that, you know, Marvel movies are the first time that we've ever had various different franchises that have connected all together. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. That that goes back all the way to the 30s. Yeah. When Universal Studios released Dracula and Frankenstein in 1931, I'm sure that at the time they had no intention or thought about connecting their franchises. But over time, that's eventually what happened, starting with the sequel to The Wolfman. Now, The Wolfman, of course, with Lon Chaney Jr., was a great film and kind of reinvigorated the Universal Monster movies. But its sequel, much like some sequels today have done, I will not name, though, because I don't care for the movie, uh, <laughs> Batman vs. Superman. <clears throat> anyway, um, the sequel to The Wolfman was actually Frankenstein meets The Wolfman. Okay, so that was the, the actual sequel to okay yeah that was the actual sequel to the wolfman and i want to say that i, it was I knew the, i knew that but i didn't know that i knew that and i, and I want to say i could be wrong about this but i want to say it was the fourth frankenstein film i have a feeling that you're right so I, I think that's what it was but anyway that was the first time that they really started to cross them over and they did it numerous times after that with house of dracula house of frankenstein blah 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 anyway what it all ended up leading up to was in 1948 when the monster movies were kind of starting to to die out and at the time, Abbott and Costello were not necessarily, uh, I wouldn't say that they were duds at the box office, but they weren't quite such the big draws that they once were prior to that. So for whatever reason, I don't know who, who was the genius behind coming up with this idea. They thought, let's take the greatest comedy duo we have at the studio right. and the greatest connected franchise that we have at the studio and put them all into one movie. I love me some Shaun of the Dead. I do. And there's a number of horror comedies out there that are very high on my list as, as favorites. I mean, we all love Beetlejuice and just about anything. Horror that Tim comedies Burton could do. be, yeah. yeah I, mean, I mean, horror comedies, that could be a totally it's different a, it's list. It's a whole right different there. list. But in my personal opinion, I don't know how you feel, Nick. In my personal opinion, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is the granddaddy of horror comedies. And certainly. One of the top two greatest horror comedies of all time, if not the best, absolutely the, the best 
prior to 1970, I'd say for sure. It's just so much fun, and and the monsters are real. They're played straight. They're not jokes. Right. The, the jokes come from Abbott and Costello, and from these goofy, weird, uh, over-the-top lunatics that get uh, get thrown into these crazy situations, and how they react to it. And it's just good, clean fun, but at the same time, because the monsters are taken so seriously, for 1948, there were a couple of moments that, that were actually pretty scary, uh, especially for, you know, younger viewers, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. um, nowadays, it's it's very tame and much more comedic. But True. I just love it. I love the music. I love everything about it. I, I can't get enough of that movie. It's, it's one of those films, I, I enjoy the film, but when you look at it from a history standpoint, where all of the franchises, both... Abbott and Costello, their films, and the Universal Monsters in general, where all of them were heading, it was this was the the end. It's the, it was the beginning of the end because it's sadly, well, where where do we take these characters? Well, let's throw them in a comedy, but play them straight. And it in a way, in a way, uh, it's it's one of those things that has repeated itself throughout history, especially where horror has, has is concerned. Look at Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees. Sure, they ran their course. What else are we going to do with them? Put them in a movie together, make them fight. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Uh, Alien and Predator. They they've run their course. What are we going to do with them? What 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 do, what do we do with these franchises? Put them in a movie together, make them fight. Genres do the same thing. You know, I mentioned Shaun of the Dead. I mean, how many zombie movies have we made? What do we do with zombies to make them new? Well. Let's focus on the comedic angle. Yeah. The monsters are still monsters, and they're still scary, and the, and the tension is still there. But let's play up the comedy. Um, and that's the thing. I think I think you go wrong if you play the monsters for laughs. I agree. I think because then, then there's no getting, horror in it. There's no. There's then no you horror start to getting it. into uh, more kid movies and more juvenile stuff i mean i love me some little monsters with howie mandel but come on (laughs) let's let's face it those monsters aren't exactly scary no (laughs) number 12 the monster squad 1987 one two punch of the horror comedy here right off the bat you know what and that's the thing growing up I didn't laugh at this movie. This movie did not have any laughs to it when I was young. Back in 1987, you. we were both eight years old. Yep. Okay, so eight years old. Yeah, there were some exciting moments, but this was a horror movie. Oh, these were monsters. These and were monsters. And, and again, played, played straight. straight. Yep. So you've got the horror angle. It's Man, this movie, oh, I, I don't know about you, but my friends... At eight, nine years old, watching this movie and running around the neighborhood, we made little business cards. I was just going to say, I was the kid that went out and made yeah. Monster Squad business cards. We made little movie. business cards, and we went door to door and handed it. If you got any trouble, ma'am, here, give us a call. And it was a 555 number. <laughs> because that's what everybody had. I, right. I didn't know what my phone number was. <laughs> Looking back at the film, especially now, uh, the nostalgic aspect to it, it's... It's Goonies, it's E.T., it's got all of those aspects of of the group of kids who the adults won't believe, so we've got to stick together and we gotta we gotta save the world. We've gotta we've gotta fight these monsters. It's what I like to call a kids on bikes movie, which happened all the time during the eighties. I mean, you that's said what Goonies, the eighties was. Yeah, Goonies, E.T., Monster Squad. I mean, you know, even 
you know, I would say aspects of things like Stand By Me and Lost Boys. Even, yeah, were, were definitely, kind of, definitely you know, Lost Boys. Um, kids on bikes movies. You know, and now now there's that resurgence of it with things like Super Stra- Eight, Super Eight, and Stranger, Stranger Things. Things. Yeah, and even to a certain extent, uh, Earth to Echo. Although that's not really a horror film, and but I, I enjoyed it for what I was. Anyway, I'm off topic. But yeah, Monster Squad yeah. definitely is kids is, on bikes movie. You got to watch it. <laughs> Do you realize that it's almost. In the year 2017, it will be celebrating its 30th anniversary. Wow, that's we crazy. We are getting old, Jason. That's crazy. That doesn't feel like that old of a movie. And when you watch it, I mean, I guess you can I guess you can see matte lines in the effects, but for the most part, you know, the makeup all still holds up a pretty lot well. Of still I mean, the Gill Man stuff. The Gillman the to this Gil day Man. still is my favorite Gillman. That's the Gil best Man. looking Gillman I've ever seen, and we've yeah. never done anything with the Gillman to look even half like that since. I, you know, I mean, Come again, on. I love Universal, but boy, the, <laughs> Creature from the Black Lagoon can't hold a candle to the look of the Gillman from Monster Squad. And that Monster was another Squad. thing about the Monster Squad. It was, it was the fact that we both grew up loving the classic Universal monsters, and here they are. And they, it was very obvious that that's what these monsters were representing. Now, obviously, you couldn't, for whatever reason, it wasn't a Universal film, so whatever reason, right. they couldn't get the rights to the Jack Pierce makeup from the old Universal films. But you but still they, got they it. Got you still effect. got They still it. got the yes. basic idea. And the thing is, this movie, this movie is so iconic that... There's even a Two Guys Talking Horror perspective review of the Monster Squad. We delve deep into lore, into feeling like a little kid. You can look for that at twoguystalking.com forward slash Monster Squad. Number 11, Dawn of the Dead. The 2004 remake, Nick, I know you and I have talked about this movie a lot. We're both big zombie fans, huge zombie fans. We're both major fans of the original Dawn of the Dead, Um, which, of course, you know, I I do enjoy and and watch regularly. But this film, I can't get enough of this film. Uh, It's Again, it's another repeat view every year, at least two or three times. Always got to fit it in there during Halloween. Great Halloween film. I remember when it came out, I was living in L.A., and, um, you know, there was all this talk about the movie coming, and, and I think it was somebody like AMC or TBS or w- one of those networks was doing a, a special preview. The first 10 minutes. The minute. first 10 Watch minutes. Watch whatever the hell we're putting on right now, and at the end of it, right. you'll get to see the first 10 minutes of the film. Yes. Yes. I, I, I can't remember what it was we had to watch. I don't recall what it was either. But, but we I, stuck through it we stuck to see through that it. 10 minutes, yes. And, uh, yeah, and I remember both of us immediately calling the other one afterwards and just freaking out over what we just saw because it's essentially, if you've ever seen the movie, the opening sequence right before the credits, which is probably the most intense moment for me in the entire film. Now, the whole film is great, and the whole film is so much fun to watch, and it gets really scary at at times, but those first 10 minutes are some of the most intense, certainly the most intense 10 minutes I've ever seen in a zombie film, but some of the most intense 10 minutes I've seen in a movie ever. And I always always like to, to share, too, the fact that I saw the movie in... LA mm-hmm. and um, I went down to the Arclight in Hollywood and where that's at is it, basically if you've ever seen pictures uh, of the theater in Hollywood that is shaped like a dome or it right. says Cinerama it's the old Cinerama dome and um, they do still show uh, regular both 35 and 70 millimeter print but they don't really do any Cinerama stuff there yeah. so they were showing Dawn of the Dead and I was like well I, I want to see it on that screen oh. it's a massive screen and the sound system's amazing I, I want to see it there we went and we, for whatever reason, we went and saw a late show. And 
while Los Angeles is not New York, it's not the city that never sleeps, you know, Hollywood, Hollywood proper, doesn't really shut down. Now, the rest of the city might because people have early set calls for whatever film they're working on the next morning. Right. But Hollywood itself is pretty bustling, pretty much all hours of the night. That night, after the movie, it was dead quiet in that town. Creepy. It was very creepy. I got out of the theater, and I, I, you know, we were, there was a group of us, and we were walking to the car, and I just, the movie had affected me so much that the the silence in Hollywood, yeah. oh, man, Especially I was when so you're creeped out. When you're not used silence. to it. Yeah. yeah, that movie just, it really, for me, kind of revitalized my interest in horror. I, I I was into it, and I certainly enjoyed watching horror films. But boy, that one certainly got me back into zombies in a big way, and and written by Local Boy. Yes, the script was written by James Gunn, directed by, ironically enough, Zack Snyder. Yeah, yeah. Before he started sucking, I was going to say maybe he was a one-hit wonder. I don't know. No, that's I guess there's moments of he's got Man of Steel. That's okay. Yeah, I liked Watchmen. Oh yeah, Watchmen. Watchmen's good. But anyway, yes, yes, Dawn of the Dead remake. I remember. It, it, it was a, a series of events. Uh, back in the early 2000s, I went to the movies a lot, mostly by myself. Every now and then, though, a movie would pique my mother's interest, and I was like, hey, you want to get together? Maybe go grab lunch, go see a movie. And most of the time, you know, me, I'm going to want to go and see a horror movie anyway. I, I can't remember what movie we were watching. But we're watching the previews for whatever movie we're sitting in the theater for. And the trailer for this new Dawn of the Dead comes on. And I'm, I'm watching it and I'm like, whoa, this, what? No, fast zombies? That's not good. Mm-hmm. I don't like that concept because in my, in my mind, in the world of George A. Romero's slow-moving zombies, I feel like I could survive. <laughs> I have the know-how and I may not be very fast, but I'm nimble. In the world of fast-moving zombies, I'm a walking lunch, man. Yeah, I am not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna see the end of the first day of this this outbreak, this this apocalypse. So already, I'm I'm a little apprehensive about this trailer. I'm like, I, I mean, I want to go see this, but I don't know if I want to go see this. And then the end of the trailer, it just kind of stops, and then it looks like all you're looking at is the film screen, the the screen in the theater, and then hands on the other side mm-hmm. start pressing against it and and again it's a nice little optical illusion that they put in there for the trailer but it freaked me out <laughs> to the point to where i knew consciously i could not go and see this movie by myself and then of course like you said the, they had that see the first 10 minutes blah 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 and watch that and i'm like oh i'm already terrified oh my god mm-hmm. but i have to go see this movie so i actually i i actually drug my mother to see this movie with me Yes, I know, big strapping man had to have his mommy there with him. I don't care. This movie was scary. The only, the only time I ever felt safe was when Ving Rhames showed up with a shotgun. <laughs> and that has been my motto since 2004. Ving Rhames with a shotty, everything's all righty. <laughs> Number 10, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 1974. If you know nothing about how film is made and you watch this, it's it's almost like you're watching a documentary of the most horrible thing you can ever imagine happening to a group of young people. 
You know, it's interesting that you say documentary because I, literally just a, a few nights ago, you know, my wife and I were talking about horror films and um, and, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre came up mm-hmm. in, in the conversation. And she was talking about how she has seen the film once, I believe, but uh, doesn't think that she could ever sit through it again. Mm. And I said, well, you don't seem to have a problem with, with gore. And, and even though there might be one or two pseudo jump scares there's not really jump scares in right. it, the way we know of jump scares now and yeah. she can't handle jump scares which i find to be <laughs> ridiculous i mean jump scares in in general i find to be ridiculous anyway so yeah so i was like well there's not really jump scares and and surprisingly enough the gore is not that gory i mean i guess for 1974 i guess it was pretty shocking but by today's standards the gore is pretty tame and as we talked about it we realized it's the way the film is shot. It's the way it looks. It's the filter. It's the mm. sounds. It has that documentary feel, which makes it feel real. Yeah. And as such, makes it feel dirty and and demented and just something's wrong with it. And I think I think that is something that very 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 few horror films achieve. It's amazing that you have that feeling. Because of the execution of the film, it, it makes you feel like you're sitting in the back of a van in the hot Texas sun with no air conditioning and you're just sweats pouring on and you feel dirty. You feel nasty. And then all of these bad things happen and they keep on happening. You can't get away. You can't look away. So you feel even more and more. It's visceral. It's very visceral on a, a physical and a mental level. And I, I, I don't know if Toby Hooper knew what he was doing when he was doing it. It, it. Very low budget. So, I mean, the reason why it looks the way it does is because there was no other way to make the film. Right. It had to look this way because we had no money to make it look better. But it was almost, uh, you know, again, as, as Taylor and I were talking the other night, it's almost very much like Jaws in that sense, which ironically was out the following year. Mm. You know, but it's it's very much like Jaws in the sense where Jaws was supposed to, you know, have this giant animatronic shark that was supposed to show up all the yeah, time. Yeah, see the shark all the and time. And the damn movie. thing would never work. And so, you know, Spielberg had to find different ways to make the shark scary. And as a result, you know, he had to get creative with with his angle, with his camera angles, with his, with his storytelling techniques and with his execution. I, I think that's very much the same thing here. Toby Hooper had no money. He had nothing yeah. to work with. So if you don't have anything at your disposal, how in the world do you make a scary movie? Well, you have to get creative. You have to get creative. Sink or swim. And boy, he swam. Absolutely. One of my all-time favorite films. Can't sit through it without squirming. I was uh, just going to say squirming. You, you squirm. Yep. There are parts where you squirm. And you know what? That means it's a great film. Number nine, A Nightmare on Elm Street. And now we're talking about the franchise spanning from 1984 through 2003. Because Freddy vs. Jason is a part of the franchise. It is a part of the franchise. We're not talking about the remake. We're talking about the Robert England franchise of films. Now these these movies are some of my all-time favorites. I know that they're your all-time favorites as well yeah i mean you just can't go wrong with the guy but that first movie particularly Mm -hmm. 
there are still some really creepy moments in that. And again, much like Toby Hooper with, with Chainsaw and Spielberg with Jaws, had very little money. Now, right. not as little as Toby had on, <laughs> on Chainsaw. He, you know, Wes Craven certainly had a, a better budget than that. But, but he still had very little money, and so he had to rely on shadows, and he had to rely on suggestive imagery. And, and as you've said many times on this show, showing us that we should be afraid of what is in the dark as opposed to the dark itself right but then you know the series as it progressed it it almost especially by the fifth one uh it almost took on a a more comical slant as it went and with each film you almost started watching more for freddy rather than for the heroes or the or the uh, protagonists i should say not heroes protagonists and you would watch for for freddy just to you know how many is he going to get in this movie? And how you know how's he going to do it? And what yeah, kind what of creative crazy, kill are we yeah, going to get? What are we going to get out of it? And what and how many one-liners are we going to get? And and how much fun are we going to get to see Robert England have on screen? And it, of course, culminated in the absolute most fun being Freddy versus Jason when you got the two titans of the slasher genre. I don't care. Even if you don't like them, I, I, I don't think that it can be refuted that those are the top two. Freddy yes. and Jason, number one, number two. They're yeah. your Superman and Batman, your Captain America and your Iron Man, your Donald Duck and your Mickey Mouse of slasher horror <laughs> films. And, you know, to culminate in the two of them just going at it and carrying over everything that you had gotten from the entire series. I just, I love it. I, lo- I watch the series uh, all the time. I especially watch the first one, the third one, and Freddy vs. Jason numerous times. Those are the, th- if you um, had to pick, those are the three that you definitely have to watch you- over and over. But the franchise in and of itself, yes, it has its high, it has its high moments and its low moments, but it's still all Robert England and his impeccable interpretation of a character that we're not we're not supposed to like this guy. I mean, right. he's a child murderer, also a, a a pedophile as well. A lot of people gloss over that fact as well. Freddy Krueger, you're not supposed to like Freddy Krueger. Well, guess what? By the time the fifth film comes around, that's and, all you care about. Really. And also, add on top of that, sired by a hundred. Is it a hundred or a thousand? It's a hundred. A hundred maniacs. Yes, the the hundred. The, the bastard, bastard son of a hundred maniacs. maniacs. Yeah, he, he, there's nothing redeemable or likable about this guy, but yet, yet by we that love him. fifth film, yeah. man. Um, and, you know, another film in the, in the franchise, in the Freddy franchise, that I personally believe is very underrated and gets a bad rap more often than not, is Wes Craven's New Nightmare. New Nightmare. Now, sure, maybe the last 10, 15 minutes of the movie just kind of spirals into just another Freddy movie. But up until then, I think it had one of the most clever concepts mm. and the most clever twists that anybody could have done to keep a franchise going. Oh, yeah. In in the sense that you bring back the cast from the original movie, but they're playing themselves. And the movie and the franchise of Freddy Krueger has taken on its own energy and persona to the point where it is now infecting the actors of the film. It is Mm. infecting their dreams and nightmares. What a clever way to keep it going. Now, again, the end of the film, you go into dreamland to fight Freddy, and then the last 15 minutes of the movie is just another Freddy movie. But who cares? If you like Freddy, it's there. The setup was very clever. And and that's really why... All of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise is placed on this list. (laughs) Number eight. 
the Evil Dead franchise. Double franchises here. Evil Dead franchise spanning from 1981 when the original Evil Dead came out to 1992 when Army of Darkness came out. That was your there there was your trilogy. Your your weird pseudo trilogy. And then now, thanks to Stars, we have Ash versus the Evil Dead. So the franchise fantastic show. Fan freaking Fantastic show. So the franchise continues. Now, the way that I look at the Evil Dead franchise, you, you have to watch all three of them. Even though each one of those films is very different from each other. Yeah. The first movie is a straight-up horror movie. Dated? Yes. Cheesy effects? Of course, for the time period. Yeah, I think but, there are things that are humorous to audiences now and laughable now, but in now, 1981, 1981, not new. so much. Stephen King actually went as far as, they used his quote all over the place. One of the scariest movies I've ever seen. Okay, 1981, you're Stephen King at the height of your, your popularity, and you're saying that Evil Dead is the, the scariest thing you've ever seen? Oh, of course people are going to love your movie. Now, Evil Dead 2... All right, well, let's go back to the cabin. Why would we go back to the cabin? <laughs> you don't go back to the cabin. And that was that's the biggest, I guess, complaint that I have of the mm -hmm. second film is the first 20 minutes is a rehash of the first movie yeah. minus all of Ash's friends. It's just Ash and his girlfriend. Right. And then it picks right up technically where the first one ends and this new one should begin. And then you get all these new characters, and and then you get you you get the chainsaw, you get the boomstick, you get the one a, a little bit of the one-liners. I was going to say that's bit where of the comedy. That's where the comedy and the over-the-top goofiness kind of started to it kick started, in. It started, yes. I mean, it wasn't quite what you see on the Stars television show, Ash vs. the Evil Dead, yet. It hadn't quite gotten to that point no. yet, but it certainly starts in that second film. And then. Army of Darkness, which for a lot of people, Army of Darkness was the first movie of this trilogy that anybody ever saw. Well, it was the first one I saw. Same here. It was the first one I saw. I was um, like, "What is it?" I saw the. I remember the advertisement. I was going to say of a on the back book. of comic books. Every single, I, th I think Marvel Comics. Yeah, it was Marvel Comics. Um, there it, it was is. The back cover of Marvel Comics that the, year. The poster. It was. Yep. It was Ash there, all billowy, big chest, the chainsaw, holding the girl, skeletons at his feet, and the tagline was, "Trapped in time." Surrounded by evil, low on gas. I'm like, what is this? I must watch it. Yep. And to find out that it's the end of a trilogy, then of course you go back. You got to go back and watch and the you others. Watch yep. the other ones. And I appreciate each film for different reasons. Because I'm sorry, Army of Darkness. You, sure, I keep it in my horror section. Army of Darkness. There is nothing scary about that movie. No, that's that's a fantasy adventure. It's a film. fantasy horror movie because you've got monsters. Well, you've yeah, got, I could you've see got it. the Again, dead rising it's one from of those, the grave. It's one of those films that's riding that line. It'll straddle it. Um, yes, it'll straddle the line. But yeah, but you can't separate it from the other two. No, you can't at all. And again, the the TV series on stars. Oh, just a great continuation of everything that I love. From the Evil Dead franchise. Yeah, I think that uh, for me, you know, watching the Evil Dead movies at least at least once or twice a year, all, the whole the whole trilogy. I don't think that I can stop anymore at just the trilogy because the TV show is so great. I yeah. got to keep going with it. I'm gonna have to watch that every year too. <laughs> Number seven, The Haunting. 
1963. To me, this is the single greatest haunted house movie ever made Hmm. and probably ever will be made. High Um, praise, high praise. In my opinion. I put it above classic haunted house movies like The Innocents Hmm. and The Changeling. I put it above Poltergeist. I put it uh, above Conjuring, Insidious, any any of the haunted house ghost supernatural movies that are out there. The Haunting is the best. And I, I don't care that it came out in 1963. I, I don't care that it's in black and white. I, I don't care what the excuses that anybody could find for the film. It is still every bit as scary today, in my opinion, as it was when it probably affected audiences when it first came out in 1963 you watch that movie even now you know turn the lights out let yourself get absorbed into this story and and into what is happening on screen and it's unlike any other haunted house experience that you could have watching this film and it's all done with shadows Mm. and sounds you don't see anything They use the power of your imagination to terrify the hell out of you for however long it is, 90 minutes to two hours. You know, based on uh, Shirley Jackson's story, The Mm -hmm. Haunting of Hill House, follows the story of these four people who spend the the night, or it's a few nights, I believe, actually, in this, this house, Hill House. And the way that the house affects each of them differently, specifically the young woman. And I don't want to give too much away because there's a lot of great twists that that take you into some neat little corners. But the house is just gorgeously shot. Mm. I believe I believe that it was directed by Robert Wise. I want to say who is one of the greatest directors in in film history. The haunting to this day. That scene when they're in the library and the pounding starts. The camera moves up above and it shoots them as they're looking up at the ceiling wondering where this pounding is coming from as the pounding is getting harder and heavier and louder and closer and then it just stops and it's silent it's so eerie the silence is what is so eerie and especially i won't say but the things that come after that are even creepier i think it's absolutely the greatest haunted house movie ever made Okay. Thoughts on the remake? <laughs> Do we even want to talk about it? In one word. One word? That's all I get? One word to describe the, the remake? One word to describe the remake. Rushed. Ooh, rushed. Okay. Rushed. Why, why, why do you feel rushed is the word to describe that movie? I say rushed because I feel like the film itself, the filmmakers rushed through it. Okay. I feel like they rushed to throw in special effects. I feel like they rushed to capitalize on the things that were popular at the time that the remake came out. Mm. And what they did not take into consideration was the fact that this film came out in 1963, what, over 50 years ago, and it did not capitalize on anything at that time. It focused on telling a story. It focused on creating characters. And even though they didn't have... Ben Hur money or Lawrence of Arabia money at the time, and they're right. not doing this giant cinemascope, widescreen, technicolor extravaganza, and they can't afford to do something like that. What they decided to do instead was they decided to make sure that the film was shot the best way it could be. 
Right. They didn't go the raw route of like a Roger Corman film or like a George Romero, you know, mm. zombie film where you just uh, let's let's go crazy with the the makeup and the blood because that's what we can do or let's go wild with making it a documentary style or you know uh, let's shoot from the hip and try and fit it together later no this was a film that was very thoroughly planned out it was cleanly shot it was cleanly lit they lit it and moved the camera in ways to where they were directing your attention at what they wanted you to see Mm. and by doing so they would distract you from the scare that was coming or, you know, the big event that was about to hit. It's definitely one of the films that I think utilized the camera to tell a story instead of, hey, I'm a camera and I'm going to capture a story. Absolutely. The camera was the storyteller. Absolutely. They they let the story and the camera and the acting and the director, it all became kind of symbiotic. Mm. Um, and it's it's something that is very rare, not just in horror films, but I think in film in general. In film in general, I mean, it's it's very hard to do anything just going for a suspenseful feel. It's very hard to pull that off with just sound and shadow. And it's very hard to pull that off, let's say, today, in mm. 2016, with the equipment that we have today. It was very hard to pull it off in 1990. It was very hard to pull it off in 1975 and so on and so forth, all the way back to the silent era. But not only was it difficult to pull it off when it came out over 50 years ago, but now here we are 50 years plus later and it's still doing what it intended to do and what it succeeded in doing for audiences then. It still does today. Number six, Fright Night, 1985. Welcome to Fright Night. My all-time, all-time horror film from the 80s with vampires in it. It it is the best. The 80s had a lot of vampires flying around, sucking blood. I don't care. It's Fright Night or bust, baby. Fright Night or Bust for you, huh? Fright Night or Bust. This is the film that I watched, uh, I, I, and I'm sure my my mother absolutely hated me because I'd watch it over and over and <laughs> over again. I knew this movie b- backwards and forwards. I could quote this movie. Did you warp the videotape? I did. For those of you out there who don't know what a VHS is VHS. or what we're talking about, <laughs> you could actually warp the movie if you watched it too much. Well, we'll put a link. Yeah, on, we'll put a link in there. On... TwoGuysTalkingHorror.com. <laughs> There'll be a nice little link of what a VHS tape was. <laughs> yeah, anytime, anytime this, this movie came on, on cable, I had to re-record it because the previous tape would have been worn out by, by the time the next viewing would have happened on whatever HBO or, or Cinemax or Showtime, whatever whatever great station was playing it. Oh man, it was a solid flick. This was this was a film that that brought you the suave sophistication of vampires that we got with Dracula from from Universal and even Christopher Lee's Dracula in the Hammer movies in the 60s. It it brought that back, but then upped it with the 80s flair for makeup effects and scares it it had a little bit of everything and i remember as as the movie came out i was six years old i remember 
there's some scary moments in this movie. Yeah. It, it was spooky. Yeah. <laughs> spooky? It was spooky. Oh. It was so uh, spooky. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's again, it's one of those cases where there's a lot of humor. I wouldn't call this necessarily a horror comedy. Uh, the way that you would consider the humor, Monster Squad or Abbott and Costello, right? The humor, humor but there is a lot of of humor, not situational humor. It was more realistic humor. Yes, yes. But again, the monster, the vampire, was played serious, and I think that that you know, I'm not a fan of sparkly vampires or. Or well, you're vampires. not a huge you're not a huge fan of vampires in general. In general, no. But but when I but I do like some. There are there are a few. Fright Night being one of them. Fright Night being probably number two on my list for vampire films. It makes them scary. That's what I want to see. You know, I think the only time that I can stomach a vampire film where the vampires are in any way humanistic would be Interview with a Vampire. And even then, mm. no matter how much you take a liking to Louis and Brad Pitt's character of Louis in Interview the Vampire, even then, by the end of the film, he is still a monster. Yeah. And he still loses it on Christian Slater. You know, I, I can't I can't stand vampires that are all mopey about, oh, I can't step out in sunlight, or I I have to drink blood, or I no, no, you are a monster. You are not natural. <laughs> that is that should not be right. And I don't feel bad for you. You've made this decision, so you know. And Fright Night, you know, it's just, it's one of the best vampire movies you could ever find. One of the few vampire movies that even I, as someone who is not a big vampire fan, watch every year. Mm. (laughs) Number five, The Scream franchise, from 1996 to 2011. This, I don't know that I could say that it is my favorite slasher franchise it's hard to toss this up with with the nightmare on elm street series but boy it's really really close and i think it's because the film hit me at the right time well you and i were both we were what what about 17 i think when this film came out and it's of course a film about teenagers high schoolers and slasher killers and monsters and whatnot but it it revitalized the slasher genre The, the slasher genre had kind of started to tank and had been tanking for some time when the first Scream film came out. And I remember very vividly that I was getting tired of slasher films and very Because it was the same old, Because it was the same old, same old. Yeah. And this film had come out, and I had no desire to see it whatsoever. And I remember my dad saying that, you know, hey, The Dollar Show has uh, that new movie, Scream. I'd like to go check it out before it's gone. And I said, oh, I, I, you know, it's just a bunch of teenagers getting killed by a killer. What do you care? And he said, yeah, I know, but everybody, it's getting good reviews, and everybody seems to like it, and, you know, it's a dollar. Yes, there were theaters <laughs> back then that actually had dollar shows. Yep. I think nowadays that's like a 3 or $4 show. But Inflation. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I remember we went and saw it, and we literally walked in right as the first frame was dropping. We missed the trailers, we got there late, and we walked in right as the first frame was rolling, and that first opening sequence with Drew Barrymore had me riveted it had me glued yeah because here for the first time we had (laughs) as close as we were going to get to real teenagers in a slasher (laughs) film now of course these are not these are still exaggerated characters but when you're 17 years old and you're seeing another sort of 17 year old played by a 25 year old uh, on the screen in in one of the more realistic ways at that time, 
man, you, you get attached to it. And when you're a horror fan on top of it, you can't help but just be drawn in. To this day, that film is is a constant staple four, five, six times a year. Absolutely, that's that's my kickoff. Whenever I start to kick off my Halloween movies in in October every year, that's the first movie that I, I start with. But this, the franchise itself is fun, too. I know that there's... I'll catch a lot of flack from a lot of people who, because I actually enjoy 2, 3, and 4. 2 is okay. 3 is much more of a horror comedy than anything. I mean, yes. crying Defin- out loud, well, definitely. Jay yeah. and Silent Bob show up in it. But the fourth one, I thought, was a, was a good return to... Well, the fourth one was the first one for another generation. For another generation without being a remake. Uh, it's still Which is the one thing that I really appreciated about yeah. that film. It's the fact that you you could do the same thing over again without remaking the movie. You and just yet make it interesting. For, yeah, you just updated it for a, another generation. It's very rare that you you can actually stick around for a horror franchise or any franchise at all that makes the goes full circle without having to end and restart again. Yeah. And Scream 4, Scream 4, I, I don't know any other film off the top of my head that has done what Scream 4 did. So, I, again, kudos to everybody involved. Kudos to Mr. Craven. Yeah. May oh, he rest in peace. Late Wes Craven. Yeah, uh, that, but that first film, man, one of, the, one of the best slasher films, I think, ever. <laughs> Number four, The Lost Boy. 1987. Now, see, this is my all-time favorite vampire film. You know what? Here's the thing. Don't get me wrong. I love The Lost Boys. The Lost Boys is great. The number two <laughs> vampire movie of the 80s for me. For you, yeah. It's always Fright Night is first, and, and The Lost Boys is right there. It's, it's a close second. I mean, it, I think if Fright Night did not have Roddy McDowell, then Lost Boys might actually would have won. But Roddy McDowell trumps Kiefer Sutherland in my book. I'm sorry. But the Lost Boys, again, it was it's it, this this is also one of those we we've talked about it before. Kids on bikes. Yeah, very much a kids on bikes. Even movie. though there's only three of the kids that were on bikes, it, it still had that type of feel. It was a, another vampire film geared towards the young adults, the teenagers, and it had the message of your parents don't understand you, but we will join us. Be like us. Come be with us. Be be young forever, but you just got to make sure you have a curfew. You have to be <laughs> back in. You got to be home before sunup. And, oh, yeah, you got to drink blood. Yeah, and, and again, much like Fright Night, you know, these vampires were monsters. You know, yes, it did appeal to the idea of if you, you know, if you feel like the outcast, come and join us. We'll take you in. Well, you got to be careful who you get taken in by. Mm-hmm. You know, and this was certainly the definition of the wrong crowd. Um, yeah, these these are killers. I think I think Kiefer Sutherland's character of David in the film even says that at one point to Jason Patrick. I think he says, "You know what you are. You're a killer. You're a killer." Yeah, I think he screams it, yeah. but um. Um, your blood is in my veins. Yeah. No, my, no, my blood. blood is in your in veins, your veins is what he says. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Something like that. Strike that. Reverse it. Thank you. 
I, I never get tired of it. The soundtrack is great. If you love cheesy 80s music, it doesn't get any cheesier or more 80s-er. I don't know if that's a word. 80s-er? 80s-er. Um, yeah. Than, than Lost Boys. It's just such a that is, fun I, soundtrack. I will give that movie that. Lost Boys <laughs> does feel like the 80s, whereas Fright Night could be at any point in time in the 80s, maybe even early 90s. Fright Night is easy to transfer to another era, too. Which the remake Which did the remake do did. a fine yeah. job. Um, but the Lost, Lost Boys, Boys is, it's the 80s. It, it is pure it's 80s. It's so saturated in the pop culture of the yeah. time. <laughs> Number three. An American Werewolf in London, 1981. Yeah, I see. I see that smile on your face. I know. You oh. and I are both in the same boat on this one. I love Lon Chaney. I love the Wolfman. I love the howling for all its cheesiness. I love Silver Bullet. In my opinion, I think yours as well. I know yours as well. There is no greater werewolf film than um, an American werewolf in London. That's the bar. That's the bar right there. John Landis set the bar. And very few have been able to meet the bar, much less exceed the bar. You know, since 1981, I don't know that I could mention any werewolf film that has come close to the bar. There have been some good werewolf films. I'm not saying that that there have been nothing but crap in the last 30 years. Well, you mentioned Silver 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 Bullet. Bullet. I would put Silver Bullet right underneath, just underneath the bar that is it's close. American Werewolf I, in London. But I don't know that I would put it right there. I, no, nothing's, no, come, nothing's come that close. American Werewolf in London, I mean, he he revolutionized the werewolf genre. Just, just the transformation sequence alone is something that will never be topped. I don't know that you could ever do it in a different, more drastic and shocking and and amazing way than that movie well it, it would cost too much to try to do that because you would have to try to do it in in a practical effects sense and nobody's going to do that because it's cheaper to do it with cgi i get it fine but come on <laughs> there has never been a greater transformation scene in any werewolf film like American Werewolf in London. It's it is the most emotionally draining human into monster transformation scene in all of cinema. Hands down. Well, and and it's not just because of, you know, the effects and the makeup and all that. Something that that I think a lot of people overlook when it comes to American Werewolf in London and that transformation is the sound. Mm. I mean, y- you almost I mean, sure, you hear the bones cracking and the skin pulling and the body twisting and all that, but you also almost hear the hair follicles coming you do out hear the hair, of the. Yeah. I mean, it's it's unbelievable the way the way the film comes together in, in in all aspects. But the audio of that movie is just unbelievable. It's a great movie, and and I don't know that we will ever get a werewolf film that comes close to it. I don't know that it could ever be topped. And you know what? I'm okay with that. I am too. I'm absolutely okay with that. We are counting down the 13 must-watch horror movies. Lethal Listings. 
We are getting so close. There's only two left, Jason. Only two left. But because there's only two left, we're going to tease you, and we're going to go, and we're going to take a break. But we will be right back. What's your favorite kind of car? What color is it? Did it murder people? Don't miss the Two Guys Talking Cars perspective review of 1983's Christine, an original story by Stephen King adapted by John Carpenter. The roar of a V8. Running teenagers. Blood red asphalt. Only from twoguystalkingcars.com. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can. With perpetual advertising, here's how it works. Magazine, radio, and television ads are efforts that people might see or hear once, and then they're lost forever. Perpetual advertising provides you with the chance for repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, even years after it's originally inserted inside a podcast. So even if your advertising is included in a podcast years ago, those efforts are still impactful, providing you with true return on investment, real impact, thanks to perpetual advertising. Are you ready to change the way you and your company or organization advertises? Find out more and launch a unique perpetual advertising effort now by visiting twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. The Feedback Gauntlet. What podcast will offer you a hundred bucks cash to tell people what you think? There isn't another one out there. And it's time for you to tell us what you think right now. Check out twoguystalking.com forward slash gauntlet to jump into the Two Guys Talking Feedback Gauntlet. We're looking for feedback about any program we have on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Follow the short instructions at twoguystalking.com forward slash gauntlet and you're entered instantly for a hundred bucks cash. What's this? Cash? For telling people what you think? Yes, cash. For telling people what you think. Twoguystalking.com forward slash gauntlet. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Two Guys Talking Horror. This time, Lethal Listings. Thirteen must-watch horror films. This isn't, uh, oh, they're so scary. These are the 13th scariest. Or, these are the 13th greatest of all times. No, no, we're not saying that. We're just saying, 
these are 13 films that you must watch if you're a horror fan. Based on our opinions our opinion. and what we enjoy. And guess what? Our opinions matter. Yeah. What? Yeah. Sure. We'll go with that. <laughs> we will go with that. We've done 13 through 3. We've got one and two left, and I know you're chomping at the bit. Mm. But just like any good list, we do have some honorable mentions. This list could have been 50 films oh, long. 100, 200. 100, yeah. Exactly. There, we would never stop. So we had to trim this list down considerably. But here are three honorable mentions. Night of the Living Dead, 1968. George A. Romero, granddaddy of all zombie films. Black and white, just, it's a beautiful film. Don't watch it in the colored, recolored version. No, you gotta watch the original. You gotta watch the original, folks. Trust me. It's one of those horror films that, it, I mean, it, it, it set a standard. It, it, not well, only it, did it set a standard, but it also broke barriers. It yes. is the first horror film to actually have an African American in the hero role it had not and, that had never happened before and not just the first to do that but to do it at a time when civil rights was such a big issue 1968 oh, yeah. i mean it was definitely still in full swing at that point in time yes so to feature an african-american which is great i mean it's fantastic for romero but to do that that's a that's a pretty gutsy move for 1968 especially when the film was debuting in theaters the exact same time that Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Yeah. Yeah. But it also, you know, aside from its societal barriers that it broke or set, you also got to think it birthed what we know of today as the modern day zombie. Yep. I'm sure there were zombies before. You know, I walked with a zombie and, and such white films zombie. And white zombie. You know, but it was always the voodoo aspect right. of the zombie. This was the first time the dead walked and ate. And Some eight. Fish. Yes. Poltergeist. 1982. I, I love this movie. I recently just rewatched it. Uh, I can't get enough of it. Uh, even though it's directed by Toby Hooper and there's a lot of Toby Hooper aspects of it, it's very clearly the haunted house movie that Spielberg made. <laughs> right. Um, very much so. I remember seeing this movie for the first time and I, I didn't want to be left alone sure. in my home. If the television ever went to snow. Well, and that's the other thing, too. You know, it's interesting because, you know, I, I was talking with Taylor about this as we were watching it a few nights back. And, and I said, do you recall when TVs would go off for the end of the night? Cause she's she's a number of years younger than me. Yeah. I said, do you recall it? And she said, no, she has no memory of that. Wow. She knows it only because of Poltergeist, because she grew up watching Poltergeist. I remember um, the... I remember that. Yep. And when, yep. ever since I saw the movie, any time I heard that on TV, and the TV go immediately to snow, I was out of that room faster than, you know, I could move. The Conjuring, 2013. Now, if you've noticed, this is the only modern-day film except for maybe Scream 4 and Freddy vs. Jason that is even on our list. Yeah, Everything is a little bit dated, and that goes to show people, well, we're a little bit dated. But The Conjuring, very much like Poltergeist, The Conjuring renewed the haunted house genre of horror. Yeah. And this was a, this was a film that 
I wasn't expecting anything from, and then it terrified me. I mean, it, it was it terrified. Yeah. It, it scared me. I could not be alone in the dark for, uh, for let's just say, a, a small amount of time after this movie. The credits roll, all the lights are on. Well, I remember the the uh, the night that we saw it was we watched this movie together. I had just moved back to St. Louis from Los Angeles, and um, and we watched it with our wives. And we did, we did. And back the when they us, weren't our wives. We, yeah, yes, that's right. They uh, weren't our wives. We were married yet. at that time. And I remember that we uh, we all crowded into your living room. You had just bought it. I just bought the movie. And and I think all four of us were absolutely horrified by the movie's end. over. I think we took we're a ter- break, didn't we? we? we halfway uh, didn't through, did we take a break? We might through? have. We might have walked away from it for a minute. Because and, it was you know so what? Scary. It sounds. It sounds. That sounds right because that that movie. Wow! I tell you what, The Conjuring. Whoo! <laughs> Number two. Halloween, 1978. My personal opinion, this is the greatest slasher film ever made. It's one of the greatest horror films ever made. I think even by today's standards, it is still one of the scariest movies ever made. Mm. And we're not talking about the whole franchise here, because the franchise kind of deviates into some stranger things. Yeah. Um, And then there's that third film that has absolutely nothing to do with Michael Myers and... And then the remakes, which I personally detested. But, boy, that first one is just brilliant. It gave us John Carpenter in a big, big way. Yeah. The music. I, I still associate that music with with Halloween. With, with Halloween. The whole season. With, with the season, yes. It's For me, it's a movie that I have to watch on Halloween at some point. Even if yep. I watch it during the day, I have to watch it on Halloween. It's usually followed immediately by my screen viewing at the beginning of the Halloween season. I probably will watch it two or three times during October besides that. Um, I watch it multiple times throughout the year. I can't get enough of that movie. It's nearly, as far as a slasher film can go, it is nearly perfect in every way. I wish I could complain about Halloween. But, well, that's because you love to complain. I, I do. I do <laughs> love to complain. But the thing is, is that there's nothing that there's nothing to complain about. Nope. John Carpenter captured lightning in a bottle. Yeah. Because again, no money had to be creative. Yep. That seems to be a running theme with the films that you and I enjoy, especially the ones that are on this list, because it seems like when there's not much to work with and you have to be creative and, and and find different ways to make things scary or intense these creators carpenter hooper even spielberg craven, craven they Weiss. they yeah, they've all, all they for some wild wacky reason they were able to do it we as a a society are better off with these films existing because they've captured real terror real horror and most of these films, if you go back and look, not a lot of blood no. and gore are connected to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween. Not a lot of gore. Maybe excessive for the time. Maybe. That they came yeah. out. There, there could be an argument made there, I suppose. But yeah, not a, not a lot of gore. And again, we keep mentioning this as well, both you know, Haunting and American Werewolf in London and all these movies. The sound. Mm-hmm. 
the sound is so important. And I don't mean in the way of a jump scare of, oh, the music is building up and now they throw this loud blasting sound at you. Of course you're going to jump out of your seat. You're going to sit there in quiet and then they're going to blare the speakers at you. Who wouldn't jump at that? That's not scary. So it's not that kind of sound that they're using. They're using sound to set moods. Mm. Case in point, in Halloween, you have the wind and you have the crunch of the leaves or the soft sounds or the soft hum of the television in the background of the scene right or that brilliant carpenter music just underscoring that, that silent you see somebody walking down the street and you hear the click of their heels as they're carrying a bag or a pumpkin or whatever and the wind blowing and that score you don't even have to show michael that is creepy by itself he was able to give us creepy moments in broad yeah. daylight. Yeah, yeah. That's the impressive thing. That is why, in my opinion, and I know yours, Halloween 1978, John Carpenter, it's one of the greatest. Yeah, yeah. It's tough to pick between that and our number one. <laughs> number one, The Exorcist, 1973. Could it have been any other movie? Well, it almost was Halloween. It almost was, and Exorcist was almost number two. Yes, there was. <laughs> we went there back was and great, forth on that for great a bit. debates. There was a couple of rounds of thumb wrestling. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, we just had to look at it logically, and when it when it boils down to, we, we had to actually throw in the scary factor into this one. Yeah, and out of Halloween and The Exorcist, sorry, The Exorcist wins about being more terrifying than Halloween. Just a skosh. Yeah, because you know, let's face it, it doesn't matter what your faith is. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter whether you believe or not that the devil exists. The concept of what the devil is is terrifying. Mm. And if you suspend it, let's say that you you completely disbelieve that, suspend Mm -hmm. that belief for two hours while you watch the movie and it's horrifying. Of course, if you don't believe, you can walk away and say, thank God that that doesn't exist. Right. But for those that do believe, imagine then how they feel, because then they walk away thinking that that's possible. Mm. Now, I don't know where I stand, and I'd rather not get into a theological debate about, about the movie. But, I agree. But it is a hundred times scarier than anything else. You don't get any scarier than the devil. Let, let, let me paint you a picture. I was denied this film growing up. So was I. My mother said, as long as you're in my house, you're never going to watch this movie. Okay, sure. Well, my teenage years, a little rebellious. My mother goes out with her boyfriend for the night. My sister is next door with the neighbors, playing with the the little girl next door. Channel 11 Mm. is showing The Exorcist. I have vague recollection of this. It's it's Channel 11. Mm -hmm. It's got to be edited to pieces. (laughs) I mean, this has got to be okay for me to watch, right? Nobody's home. They'll never know. I watched 15 minutes of The Exorcist. And we're talking towards the end. I, I don't know what's going on. All I know is that Linda Blair is all, her face is all cracky and she's spewing pea soup and she's got the deep voice and it's really, it's really creepy. I watch 15 minutes of this. I see the lights in the driveway show up. I turn, I turn to a different channel and turn the TV off and walk away. My bedroom was a converted garage. Mm. 
and the windows were painted over. Oh. When you turn off the light in my bedroom, in my childhood bedroom, it is pitch black. For a week after watching those 15 minutes, every time I turned the light off, I saw Linda Blair's face in the darkness, whether my eyes were open or closed. That shows how scary this is. For 15 minutes, out of context, for it to affect me like that. Then, I didn't even actually get to see the movie fully until I was 18 years old. I was going to say, I think I was much older, too. I, you know, my dad introduced me to horror films, and he grew up, you know, even though he was born in the 50s, he grew up with the Universal Monster movies, and, and of course, the Hammer films, and I mean, you know, you're talking about a kid that bought every single issue of Famous Monsters magazine, and um, his favorite type of film would either be a toss-up between a Western or a horror film. Even the ones that terrify him to the bone, he watches repeatedly year after year. Right. We were not allowed to have The Exorcist in the house when I was growing up. When I got old enough to rent it on my own, I think I was about 18 or 19, I I remember telling him, you know, hey, I'm going to go to the video store. Remember those kids? Uh Uh, I was going to go to the video store and rent The Exorcist. I wanted to see it, and uh, I wanted to get this director's cut. I didn't want to waste my time with the original theatrical. I wanted to see the director's cut. Mm -hmm. I remember my folks both saying, okay, let's do it. And my dad said, you know, I saw that movie the night it came out, and it terrified me so much that I swore I'd never watch it again. And now here I was, I was 17, 18, something like that. And he was like, you know, I think it might be time for me to watch the movie again. Wow. So we all sat down as a family to watch it. And, of course, we were all scared to the core. After the movie, I think he said, okay, I think I'm good for another 25 years. (laughs) And And I don't think, other than maybe clips and things and reels, I don't think he has seen it since. Now, I've seen it multiple times. I bought it. I, you know, I immediately right. fell in love with the movie. And, and again, the music. The music, yeah. the use of music, the use of sound, the use of... Score, shadow. Shadows lighting, and lighting though. and pacing. That's another thing that we haven't talked about with any of these films. All of them. Even things like Monster Squad. The pacing that the editors and the directors set on all of these films is so crucial. Mm. If... You know, Lori is not walking down the street long enough to the music of Halloween. If she's only walking by two houses, well, we don't have a lot of time for that to register. You let her walk the whole block with that music playing, now you've set a tone. And that's a totally different thing. And it's a thing that a lot of films nowadays don't go for. Right. You know, they they jump to the the scares. Yeah, the jump scare. The Exorcist is easily one of the kings of pacing and tone. I I don't think it's matched, or at least certainly not matched by many. Now we come to the time in our program where we ask you, the audience, out of these 13 tasty, evil, spooky horror films, which one is your favorite? Did we miss any? I'm sure we did. That that you personally would include. Is there a film that you think stacks up with the 13 that that we omitted? Tell us your thoughts by going over to twoguystalkinghorror.com. Fill out the web form on the right-hand side and let us know. What do you think? 
Wow. Jason, that was that it was thirteen and yeah, a few honorable mentions, but that was whew, that was an epic list. It is an epic list. And boy, you know, it was really tough making the list. I, you know It was Sophie's choice on a grand <laughs> it scale. Really, it really was. There, there are were, so many other movies that, that you kinda wanna have on that list, but you know, there, there's not room. There's I no know. room. We we could do you know, we could do another whole episode of the next thirteen. Yes. Uh, and maybe one day we will. Maybe. Who knows? We may. We may. It could be the 13 must-watch horror movies, volume two. The 13 must-watch horror movies, the sequel. The sequel. Because these days, baby, you, you gotta, gotta have, have the sequel. sequel. That wraps up the 13 must-watch horror films. Lethal Listings. Until next time. I'm Nicholas J. Hearn, one of your hosts. And I'm Jason Contini, your co-host. And until then, remember, don't be afraid of the dark. Be afraid of what's in the dark. Congratulations. You've survived this episode of Two Guys Talking Horror. We hope you were entertained and informed by our program. Take what you have learned and pass it on to your family and friends. It may just save their lives someday. Have questions? Comments? Suggestions for a future episode? Visit our website at twoguystalkinghorror.com. Click anywhere on the right-hand side and fill out our short web form. It's the easiest way to interact with the hosts. Beware of monsters, creatures, and all things that go bump in the night. And keep telling yourself, it's only a podcast. It's It's only only a podcast. It's only a podcast. It's It's only a podcast. It's only a podcast. It's It's only a podcast. podcast.